But last time I checked, I had the third worst eyesight at my eye doctor's. It's quite the award. Um, I have terrible eyesight. Without contacts or glasses, I can't see anything. If my wife was standing right here, she would just kind of be a blur. Um, I got my first pair of glasses, I think I was second grade, and I would have to go get new glasses about every six months or so. My eyes just got really poor really, really quickly. Uh, my wife got to experience this uh, early on in our marriage. Uh, it was middle of the night, heard a sound, woke up, lean over the edge of the bed, and I look on the ground, and there's a rat. So I wake my wife up, because that's what you do as a new husband, as you wake your wife up, and to deal with the rat. And I said, honey, 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 wake up, wake up. She says, what? I said, there's a rat. So she leans over me and she looks on the ground and it's my t-shirt. My t-shirt's laying on, on the ground. I think about my eyesight every night. I'm a middle-aged man, which means I can't sleep through the night anymore. And so I stumble into the bathroom and try not to bonk into things because I can't see. I thought about my eyesight this morning when I put contacts in and this miraculous transformation that happens when everything comes into view. Everything is crisp. Jesus is going to talk about how we see today. He's going to say some of us need some corrective lenses. He's going to do a little eye exam. And some of us, maybe we're seeing rightly. Maybe some of us are seeing poorly. He's going to come and try to show us if we need a new prescription or not. And the way we think about money and possessions, the way we engage with money and possessions in our lives, the way we handle these things, specifically what we're going to talk about today is this, just two handles. You and I, we may have a problem, but God's got a solution. You may have a problem, you may not. Jesus is going to do a little exam, but you may have a problem. Good news, if we do, God's got a solution. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's wonderful, clarity-providing word. We'll start at verse 19 of chapter 6 of Matthew. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? 
And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Feel free to grab a seat. Jesus really begins in verses 22 and 23, this series of ifs, this kind of if statements. What Jesus is doing is he's saying, you may have a problem. He's not saying you do, but he's saying you may be seeing things correctly as we think about money and possessions, and you may not be seeing things correctly through money and possessions. One thing that is clear to say and clear to see is that our world for sure has a problem with how they think about money and possessions. We'll see this interplay between light and dark, lightness and darkness in this text are healthy and diseased. Light, it's seeing money and possessions from the right perspective. It means it's, it's healthy. What, what Jesus is saying is getting the point of Matthew 6, 19 through 21, where it said, don't store up treasure on earth where moss and rust, that can also be translated vermin if that makes it even a little bit less appealing to do it to you, or thieves break in and steal. Stored up in, in heaven. And, and what Jesus is saying, it's not that this earth is, is bad. It's, it's wonderful. It's just temporary. So living your life only for this dot, only for this blip, only for this blink, it, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not just contrary to God's word. It's just not wise. So it's getting the point of 619 through 21 that putting our hope for security or status or satisfaction in the things of this earth it's just foolish. Darkness, it's seeing money and possessions from a warped perspective. The term can actually mean diseased or unhealthy. This is living as if you can take it with you. This is living as if money and possessions will be soul satisfying for you. That if you make enough, then you'll finally be okay. It's missing the point of Matthew 6, 19 and 21. It's saying, no, treasures on earth are all there are to live for. There's another word that helps to emphasize how sick the way our world thinks about money and possessions, and it comes in the last word of verse 24. You, just, you cannot serve God and money, but if you look at that word, there's a, little, there's a little number next to it. There's a little footnote, and that footnote in old translations, some translations still use it. The King James translation would use this, that you cannot serve God and mammon. And what that word is, this word mammon, it's a, it's a Greekified version of a Hebrew word that, that has to do not just with money, just the currency, but really the power of money. And what Jesus was doing when he used that word is he was trying to, to do something. He was trying to personify money. He was trying to say money, can, it can be almost deified. It can have this godlike sway and power in our life, and it can demand a godlike allegiance. That's this play in verse 24 between it's God or it's mammon. One's going to be your master and you're going to be a servant. 
I love the way Andy Crouch says it in the life we're all looking for. Money for Jesus was not a neutral tool, but something that could master a person every bit as completely as the true God. Mammon is not simply money, but the anti-God impetus that finds its power in money. Craig Blomberg in his commentary in Matthew says this, many perceptive observers have sensed that the greatest danger to Western Christianity is not, as is sometimes alleged, pervading ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. We try so hard to create heaven on earth and to throw in Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. If you read through the Bible, really from beginning to end, what you will find, if you read it through this lens, you will find that one of the primary things that turned God's people's hearts away from him was money and possessions. Oh, ideologies, other religions for sure, but money and possessions are, are, are not bad things, but they are powerful things. Light is darkness in this text. Jesus makes a really interesting insight. He says, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is saying like when you buy into a very corrupt way of thinking about money and possessions and you think it's right, you are, you're really wrecked. He's saying it's, it's really bad. PBS did a special in 1997 on this idea of this godlike power of money called affluenza. The authors, uh, or the, there's some authors that went on from the, from the documentary, they wrote a book called Affluenza. They define it like this. A painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Now, this comes from 97. So let me give you a few stats. I'm sure we could come up with new stats, but I just pulled it from the documentary. In a given year, more Americans declare bankruptcy than graduate from college. 90% of divorcees cite arguments and stress over money as one of the major contributing factors of why they got divorced. This, this step blew me away. Average American shops six hours a week while playing with his or her kids for 40 minutes. And this was 97, when we didn't have e-commerce. Some of you may remember the story of Ethan Couch. He was 20 or 13 or so. He's a 16-year-old who killed four people while he was driving maimed to others that have lifelong injuries. He was drunk. He was over three times the legal limit when he crashed his father's Ford 350 into another car, ejecting people out of the bed of his truck. This is a tragic situation. It's a very sad situation. But one of the reasons that it made national headlines was the strategy that the defense attorney used to try to get him off. The defense attorney called psychologist Dick Miller to the stand who made the argument that Couch was suffering from a mental illness, basically something like temporary insanity and could not stand trial or be held accountable for what he did. And this is what he cited, affluenza. Couch couldn't be held responsible because his wealthy parents had so enabled and so spoiled that he could not distinguish right from wrong. And there was a phrase they used in the trial, something like this, Money buys privilege. The prosecutor in this case asked for 20 years. He got 10 years probation and no jail time. That's sick. Now, I don't know about you, but I think sometimes the media spins things up in ways that are incorrect. 
Sometimes it's not always forthright. So, so whenever I hear cases like this or read articles, I, I have a bit of like a, what actually happened? And, and I don't pretend to be a criminal justice expert in all the reasons that it came down this way, but the fact that it's even plausible in our culture tells us something about how we think about money. The way our world thinks about money is sick, and the way our world thinks about money can really make us sick. The greatest power of mammon, let me give you the kind of upshot, I'll give you a couple ways this works out, but let me, the greatest power of mammon, when money gets a godlike status in our lives, the greatest power of mammon is to blind us to the power of mammon. And we aren't even aware it's manipulating us. It's got the power to make us choose jobs we don't like. Think about that for a second. You give 30, 40, 50 years to a career you don't like because the paycheck is big enough. Oh, goodness, and we want to provide for our families and be generous with our churches and communities and support other nonprofits and go on decent vacations. But, but often the question we're asking when we go into a career is something like, how much does it pay? It's not an unimportant question. I just should it be the first question. It's so powerful, it can cause us to compromise our characters in ways our 15-year-old selves never would. We do things in the workplace, in our jobs, we could never imagine. It has the power to push us into debt that we are drowning in. To buy things that we don't need in order to keep up with a culture that says, this is what you must have. It can wreck relationships. We forsake our families and our spouses and our friends and our churches to work and work and work and work and work in order to do what? To get more of what mammon promises. Finally enough status that we feel like something, finally enough money so we feel secure, finally enough stuff so we're finally satisfied. Remember, um, I was doing premarital a bunch of years ago, and I sat with this couple, and the husband was really into to toys. He loved to hunt, loved to fish, um, motorcycle, boat, just totally fine. He made good money, and he was now preparing to get married, and we're sitting down. And, but one of the things that I noticed as I was working with them is that, that his love for, for toys was putting quite a strain on their relationship both from a time, but also from a financial standpoint. And his future wife was worried about it. And so at some point in the time of us meeting, I asked, I said, hey, um, if your toys get in the way of your marriage flourishing, are you willing to get rid of them? His response was a credible symptom of the contagion of affluenza. He said, no. Now I wanted to look at her and just say, Run. People over the last 20 years as a pastor have shared so many deeply personal things with me. And it is an immense privilege for anyone to open up their lives and to open up their closets and show the skeletons that are in there. They've shared with me uh, their, their, their own distress, their, their, their struggles with mental health, their, their struggles in their marital health, their, their, their browser histories, their, their, their just so many things that have happened to them and that they've done to some of the things, frankly, that have been very embarrassing to them. The thing that never comes up is money. It never comes. I don't know. I, I could be wrong on this, but I don't think there's ever a time where someone reached out to me and said, hey, could we meet? Because I think I'm struggling with greed. Why? 
because we don't struggle with greed? My guess, um, and this may be the most positive way I can phrase it, is I don't think that we think money is that big of a deal or impacting us that much. I think it's probably more this, though. We don't want to know. We don't want to ask. Mammon has so much strength, so much power, it makes you not want to ask the question. Let me quote by, give you a quote by A.W. Tozer. Listen to this. It's one of the glories of the Christian religion that faith and love can transmute lower values into higher values. Earthly possessions can be turned into heavenly treasures. As base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted, to be transformed into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Now listen to these final two lines. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Let me read that again. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. I read that, that quote, and I'm like, why would I not do that? Why would I, what would keep me from doing that to storing up treasure in heaven where, where rodents can't get at? Something that, that pays an eternal dividend. And, and oh, goodness, we, God, God, you're going to hear this in this series that, that the things of this earth are not meant to be despised, but to receive with glad and generous hearts to enjoy the good things he gives us and the breaks and the lunches and the homes and the vacations. But sometimes, too often, they have a tendency to dislodge that which is best. Why would we not want what Tozer's saying? Mammon. It has the power to blind us from what is best and assert a godlike power in our lives. The way our world thinks about money is sick. The way our world thinks about money can make us sick. And you have to choose what you're going to follow. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. I don't know, I don't remember the first time this hit me, but it hit me really clearly. I'm not gonna be the one person that gets out of Jesus's words here. I'm not gonna be the one person that this doesn't apply to. No one is, there's no escape clause. It's gonna be one or the other. No one can have two masters. You cannot serve God in money. Eventually, something will take over. Something will take center stage and determine how you live, how you steward your resources, how you function. Well, think about our solar system. Physics makes really clear that the object with the most gravity will reorient everything around it. All of the planets and the moons and everything finds their orbits because of the, the gravity of our sun. It's the same thing with God or with money. One thing is going to have the most weight in the decisions that we make and will cause everything else to orient around them. That's what Christ is saying in verse 24. God or mammon, one or the other, you have to choose. The 2000 NFL football draft, a football draft has a lot of choosing. Who am I going to select? Round one, I went and looked at the first 10 drafts from that first round of 2000. Courtney Brown, 
Number one, first round, LeVar Arrington, Chris Samuels, Peter Warwick, Jamal Lewis, Corey Simon, Thomas Jones, Plaxico Burris, Brian Earlocker, Travis Taylor. How many of those names did, do, do you know? Okay, I see four, three, five. We got some, some probably know like 12 of the names, even though I gave 10. <laughs> I knew like one and a half of them. I sent a text to uh, Pete Carlson, our community life pastor. I said, dude, how many of these do you know? He's like, I know five. Um, some of you know all of them. Some of you know all of them, okay? But here's a name that I'm guessing 99% of the people in this room have heard of. He is arguably the GOAT of football, the greatest of all time. Seven-time NFL Super Bowl champion, five-time Super Bowl MVP, three times NFL MVP, 15-time Pro Bowl. He's the NFL's 2000s all-decade team. He made the NFL's 2010, so like for the whole decade, who are the best players made that team. Then they did 100 years. For, for the 100th anniversary, they said for the last 100 years, who would make the team? This person made the team. Anybody know who we're talking about? Tom Brady. Tom Brady. And you know what's, what, what spot he got picked? Fifth, fifth round, or fifth round? No, sixth round. Sixth round, 199th. There was 198 other opportunities to pick the right person. Think about that for a second. The greatest football player with the most impact went in the sixth round, 199th. Seven Super Bowls. We picked Sean Alexander 16th. It's fine. We went to seven Super Bowls. Why would, why would you not pick him? Well, if you've seen any of the film from the combines, he doesn't look that athletic. You know, stat numbers aren't that impressive. It, like, like what appears to us, it's like we're looking through a certain lens and we're looking for a certain type of person and he just didn't factor in. So one person after another, after another, after another passed over him. And they missed it. We don't have to miss it. Christ is pulling back the curtains on reality and saying, this is how it all plays out. This is how it all works. The choice is ridiculously clear. If we allow money to become a rival to God for our dependence, our focus, our allegiance, our lives will be full, verses 19 through 21, of foolish squandering. Verse 24, angst, exhaustion, internal conflict. That's what it's like. You're, like you're trying to serve God, but money's got too much of your heart. And so then you can't really be generous. And when you are, you kind of begrudge it. You get be sour. Or verses 25 and following, needless worry. And anxiousness, like verses 25 and following, this beautiful picture of God providing for the sparrows. And it's not just don't be worried in general. It's saying you don't have to be anxious around money. The choice is clear. Money is a helpful tool and a terrible God. Our culture definitely has a problem. You may have a problem. I may have a problem Jesus points to the solution. Then we'll look at it in two ways. One of them is the command of verse 33, and one is the care of the Father from verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Let's start with the command. Verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. And all these things will be added. It's a very similar command that Jesus gave in verses 19 through 21. Don't store up on earth things that are fleeting and precarious. Store up your treasure in heaven. Seek first. Do it first. That first is really important because everything follows. This is like a first order command. A first order command is like, like when you button your shirt. Like if you get the first button wrong. <laughs> if you get the first button wrong, the shirt's always going to be wonky. You put that button, you know, it's like, uh, it's so fun to watch you all just sit there whisper to each other. <laughs> Does he know? Should we tell him? I haven't heard anything you said, but I hope you remember this. You get that first button wrong. You put the wrong thing in the wrong place, in the wrong order. It doesn't matter what you do downstream. It's always going to be messed up. Always. Seek first. You're probably thinking like, oh, that's because you say that terrible eyesight. He must have gotten dressed before he put his contact in, poor guy. Seek first. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix it. I'm going to turn this way, though. It's kind of weird to be doing this in front of you. I've told a few people, like, if I ever start taking my shirt off while I preach, just, you know, get me off the stage and let me rest. I must be tired. I must be tired. No matter what you do, though. <laughs> now I've got to make sure I do it right or this illustration's really going to flop. You know, if you get the wrong button in the wrong hole, it doesn't matter what you do. But that's how, like, actually, it's that easy to fix, too. It's that easy to solve. Just, just listen to our Lord. He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And trust all the downstream stuff to work out. I love how C.S. Lewis says it. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added. Let me try to apply this first order command. Last week, um, to talk about what it looks like tangibly and practically storing up treasure in heaven, I talked about it it looks like like caring for, for widows in Cambodia and It looks like helping young girls escape trafficking. It looks like supporting things like the Lighthouse Mission that provide food and shelter and dignity to image bearers. It looks like supporting churches and church planters so that people can meet Christ and grow up in their faith. Let me give you the loudest, um, in in the background of my head, every time I read this text that's really loud for me, the the loudest place where the seeking first the kingdom of God came out is, is the journey that my family took in adoption. My wife had just given birth to, to my oldest son, Owen. This is our second child, and, and I'm holding him, and I dedicate him to the Lord. And I just felt like the Lord was, was I, I didn't hear his audible voice, but it just felt so, so clear. And he's just like, there's children that do not have what your son has. You have the capacity to provide it. I want you to adopt. Some of you have heard this next part, but like a really 
really stupid husband. I look at my wife who had just given birth, holding my son Owen, and I was like, I think we're supposed to adopt. <laughs> She's like, what, do you not like them? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I just want more of them, you know. When we get home from the hospital after a couple days and I bring it back up, I, honey, I think we're supposed to adopt. And she's like, don't talk to me again for a year about it. She's a very wise, godly woman. So I didn't. So I waited. She said, you got to let me, like, I want to focus here. After Owen's weaned, then we can talk about it. And so Owen was weaned and then I brought it back up. And we began this process of praying, kind of dreaming and talking. Like, really, I mean, I had this sense I could just felt like the Lord. This is what he was calling us to. And then we began to talk about adoption. But it was like, well, wait a second. Look at our house. We don't have enough bedrooms. Like, we didn't design our our." our our family or our house to be a family of six. Look at our car. We cannot fit another car seat in our car. There's no way. We can't, we, like, we can't even carry all the humans in this vehicle if we adopt the money. How are we going to do this? This is, this, is, this, is, this is expensive. We don't have a bunch of extra money right now. How are we possibly going to pull this off? Not just to adopt them, but just to raise them. Our, like, how are we going to provide we're called to provide. That's, I'm biblically called before the Lord to provide for me. How am I going to do this? Am I going to have enough energy, enough love, and all these things? And there's some point along all of these what-if questions, which really flow from a worrying, anxious heart, which you see in this text. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Where, where are we going to live? Like, what am I going to wear? Like, at some point in this process, Katie and I, we just came to this text. And we just begin to pray different. We just begin to say, we want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Not how are we going to pull it off? Not does it all pencil out? God, what do you want us to do? And it was so clear. He wanted us to adopt. God provided not just the resources to adopt, but our children. Mammon can't give you anything more precious than my kids. Aim at heaven. You'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. One of the questions, one of the ways you might push against Christ's words in this text to seek first the kingdom of heaven is you could say, well, but... Does God always come through? Like we can look at the lived experience of other Christians over the centuries. And what do we do with their real world experiences where they sometimes went without? Where they sometimes didn't have shelter, didn't have clothes, didn't have food. Don't those experiences feel contrary to what's happening here in verse 33? Let me give you a few thoughts. This isn't all the responses that we could have to that. Um, where we're lacking, you know, where we feel like God hasn't delivered these things. I, I mean, this maybe is a gut check question, but are we sure that we actually are seeking his kingdom first? Maybe, maybe not. Or maybe, maybe these things, or maybe, maybe this, like maybe, maybe we've missed that these things don't necessarily mean the nicest things. Or the best things. Or all the things. 
Like, I, I think there can be this functional way of taking a text like this or taking a, 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 a devotion to the Lord and trying to reorder our lives around the gravity of his word and the glory of our God. God, okay, if, I, if I'm faithful and I'm generous and I give, then you're going to hook me up. But that's, this text says no, like, provide food and drink and clothing. But it doesn't mean it's always the best things. Or perhaps this, maybe, maybe we, we feel like we sought the kingdom, but God didn't really come through. But maybe he came through in ways that we just didn't expect. Adoption, I remember living this out. Like we got to this point where we're like, yes, we are called to do this and our hearts were overflowed. Well, they, were just, they were just so full of joy. And we, we wrote the first check to begin the process with the adoption agency, which is a pretty big check. And then a couple months later, there was another check that was coming due. I think it was like $8,000. And I remember sitting in my office a few days before we had to write this check. And I'm like, God, like this, this bill is due and we do not have it. Like we, we, like we, I thought, like we seek the kingdom and your righteousness and all these things will be added. I, I really functionally felt like what it was going to be is like we would seek the kingdom and then God would make it rain from on high. I remember sitting there, I'm like, God, we don't have it. And I didn't hear his audible voice, so I want to be clear, but I felt like he's like, yes, you do. And I'm like, no, we don't. He's like, yes, you do. God, we, we don't have it. All we have is we have a little bit of money in retirement. He was like, well, what do you think? That's, you have it. I said, but it was for this other thing. He says, no, it wasn't. You just thought it was. It was always marked out for this. We ended up refinancing our house twice to pay for our adoptions. You know, and it's like, I, those are things that were like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to, it doesn't, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. It's all going to flow downstream. And as we ran out of every resource we had, as we hit the financial reset button, other Christians, they gave exactly the right amount, exactly right on time. I mean, careful, I don't, it's not a, put the coin in and pull the lever and it's going to work out perfect for you. I, I'm almost nervous to share that illustration, but I did, we just have so many ways of evading Christ's words here with all of our what if questions. What if we actually just took Christ seriously to seek his kingdom and his righteousness and trust? You know, whatever Jesus has in mind exactly. Um, well, let me ask this. Can mammon promise something more sure than what Jesus can promise? Because you're going to have to trust someone. Like, can you trust the markets? Can you, can you trust that your retirement, wherever it is, wherever it's invested, is safe? Can you trust that inflation won't come out of nowhere and make life so much more difficult for you? Can you guarantee there will not be another mortgage crisis. And your home won't go down in value two, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. And you're sitting upside down. Can you guarantee that your career will always advance and your company will always be able to employ you, that there will not be any 20% layoffs 
Can you guarantee? See, that's the difference. It's we can trust God or we can trust mammon. And this is what mammon calls you to trust in. Can you guarantee that you won't face some unexpected illness and lose all of your resources like happens to so many Americans? You got to choose. You got to choose. But the choice is so unbelievably clear, especially when you look at his care. In this text, it is a sweet text where Christ is, is trying to draw attention. He's trying to color. This is, this is why you can do it. It's not just a text about not being worried or being anxious generally. It's in the areas like, how are we going to put food on the table? How are we going to provide for our kids? How, how are we going to have a home over our heads? So Jesus goes into this text and he, he gives at least seven different reasons from verses 25 through 34. I won't go through all of them, but, it, but it's things like, your life is worth more than stuff anyway, verse 25. Or things like verse 27, worry doesn't change anything anyway. Who can add a single hour to their life? Don't, why keep worrying about it? Or worry is a sort of practical atheism. This is what the Gentiles seek out for people that don't know God, that don't think they have a father in heaven. Or this, your father knows what you need and will supply it anyway. Verse 32. I mean, just look at the birds. You know, sparrows, we kind of like sparrows. Like, look at the crow. Despicable crow. (laughs) But God feeds them. Oh, do you know how much more precious you are than a crow? Thank you. That's the best compliment I've gotten all day. You're slightly north of a crow. Um, But that's what Christ is saying. Don't you know? You're so worried, you're you're so overly labored, you're so burdened, you're so enslaved to this God of mammon that takes and takes and takes and crushes when you have a father in heaven. And it's his goodwill to give you the kingdom. Yeah, how'd you eat as a baby? How do you how do you have clothes as a baby? How do you have anything? Here's how it works: somebody that loved you and cared for you, nurtured you, and provided for you because they befriended you, because they loved you. And somewhere along the lines, we forget that, that we have a father in heaven who is for us and loves us and cares for us and nurtures us and provides for us. The birds of the air got nothing on us. And when we get that, it frees us up to do the very thing Christ says here, to seek first his kingdom. I'll end with this. If you ever wonder how valuable you are, just look at what the Father provides. Jesus, the one who's not just teaching us how to order our lives rightly, but came to give his life for us. The story of of the gospel, how God takes people far from him and he brings them in now as forgiven sons and daughters is the story of a generous God who didn't withhold the very best, his own son. The markets will never do that for you. Your careers will never do that for you. They'll they'll crucify you on the altar uh, of those pagan offerings. But God sent his son who was crucified in our place, 
who gave of his very best, who, who on the cross gave his righteousness that we might be righteous, that gave his life that we might find true life, that brought us in, that, that, that tells us that through his work, through his death and through his resurrection, that there is a new creation coming that we get to be a part of, not because of how generous we are, but because of how generous he is, that death can't even keep him. Father's not stingy. He didn't withhold his son. What's he going to withhold that's good for us? His kingdom is sure it's coming. His righteousness is ours right now. The joy of the new creation, it's beyond imagination. Mammon can't do any of that. Mammon will demand and take and crush Jesus comes to give and to be crushed for us. Seek first his kingdom and just trust him. See the world through this lens that he has provided. It's the only choice that makes any sense anyway. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Let's pray. Father, thank you for respecting us enough to speak truth to us. Thank you that when you speak, it's always for our good and always for our building up that we might flourish and those around us might flourish and you might be glorified. The fact that when we talk about money, it so often touches a nerve in our hearts is probably a really good indicator of how strong and powerful mammon can actually be. And so I ask that through the work of the Spirit, you would allow, you would allow there to be commendation. Where there's commendation, you have an if in this passage. It doesn't mean we can't order our lives rightly around you. And so I pray for those in the room in the areas of their life where they have sought you first and sought your kingdom first and and, and just trusted for how it worked out, God, might they feel encouraged? God, for those that haven't or in the areas where all of us have not done it, would you, would you do this? We're, we want to be a church of conviction, not condemnation. For there's none of it left for those who are in Christ. And so for anyone here who is in Christ, who trusts in Christ and his righteousness alone, God, I ask that you would allow our hearts to be pricked, but not to be crushed. Father, grant us a greater confidence through the work of the Spirit. We're so worried about so many things. Help, maybe today, the only thing we really care about is, are we seeking you first? And trusting that everything will get worked out. I know it's more complicated than that, but maybe it's not. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.